0: section thirteen of the beginning of the middle ages by richard william church this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. the roman empire in the east part two on its eastern border the hereditary war with persia under the dynasty of the sassanian kings the destroyers in two twenty six of the parthian kingdom and the inheritors of its long feud with the Republic and the Empire, continued to damage and sometimes to menace the Empire till it gave place to one still more formidable, the long struggle with the Mahometan invasion, first under the Arabs, then under the different Turkish dynasties. Justinian had been succeeded by a series of emperors, men of unusual excellence, but not fortunate. The last of them, the cappadocian Morris 582 to 602 was murdered by a worthless and cruel soldier the cappadocian phocus 602 to 610 but the hopes of the empire were restored by the accession of a man of latin nurture and sympathies the african heraclius in 610 under heraclius it seemed as if the empire reformed and invigorated were to retrieve its fortunes. He met his difficult and threatening circumstances with courage, judgment, and masterly ability. The stress of war had lately gone heavily against the empire. The Persians, under a famous king, Kosru or Chosrus, Nushirvan, had broken through the Roman line of fortresses. Kosru had stormed and ruined Antioch and other cities of Syria, and in spite of the successes of belisarius imposed a tribute on justinian as the price of a fifty years truce five forty to five sixty two under Justinian's successors with one short interval under maurice the persian ravages had been uninterrupted and were drawing nearer and nearer to the capital Heraclius, at his accession, found himself with an empire in disorder between two formidable enemies, sometimes in alliance, the Avars on the north and the Persians under a second Khosru on the east. The Persians were carrying all before them. For ten years, from 617 to 627, they were masters of Egypt. For ten years they were encamped within view of the palace of Constantinople. They had plundered Jerusalem and carried off the sacred relics and the Christian patriarch to Persia. They were masters from the Black Sea to Cyrene. They would not hear of peace. So dark seemed the prospect that for a time Heraclius meditated the transfer of the seat of empire from Byzantium to Latin Carthage. But the thought was a transient one. He never really lost heart. Without hurry, With undaunted patience, with steady and perfect skill, he spent his first years in restoring order in the empire and the army. Then, confident in the strength which he had left in Europe, he sprang forth on the Persians. In a series of brilliant and triumphant campaigns from 622 to 628, he recovered the provinces and the boundaries of the empire. He penetrated into Persia and captured the royal palace, bringing back in triumph the spoils of jerusalem in 627 and from the terrible blows inflicted upon it the persian power finally sank its next assailants were the mahometan saracens just starting in their career of conquest and it fell at once before them but the vanquisher of persia had also to encounter the saracens and whatever be the explanation whether from the treachery of his officers or from political or religious disaffection heraclius who had rescued the eastern provinces from the persians was helpless to prevent them from falling a prey to the soldiers of abu Bekr and omar the end of the reign of heraclius saw the beginning the alarming beginning of that invasion of the Mohammedan powers of asia which was to become henceforth the standing peril of the eastern empire which was to cripple it and cut short its borders and which at last was to destroy it peace was hardly made between heraclius and the persians before the arabs appeared in syria from six twenty eight to six thirty three with heraclius the great captain and conqueror still on the spot they took damascus before his eyes in six thirty five jerusalem amessa aleppo antioch fell one after another he had to fly from the scenes of his glory and before he died he heard the portentous tidings of the capitulation of alexandria and the conquest of egypt by amru and the enthusiasts of the new religion in six forty one the reign of heraclius which had promised to re-establish the civilization and majestic peace of rome the fame of which was recognised and embellished with fables at the court of the frank king dagobert ended with the sudden appearance of an irresistible power in the east which was to extinguish these hopes for ever but the final catastrophe was not to be for more than eight hundred years the family of the great heraclius furnished a succession of degenerate emperors some of them mischievous and cruel tyrants whose reigns coincided with the later merovingian times and the rise of the mayors of the palace it was a time in the east as well as in the west of public confusion and decline during the hundred years of the rule of the family of heraclius the saracens extended their conquests round the mediterranean and at length into spain and gaul and twice laid siege to constantinople itself but if they were rending away the provinces of the empire and even daring to strike at its heart they learned also how great even in its time of distress and defeat were its defensive resources and inherent strength it could bear without giving way the vices and weakness of its government even in this hour of extreme danger and before the most formidable assailants in the very flush of their triumph nothing had yet arrested the saracens before them all the great cities of the east had fallen neither the sea nor the deserts had been a barrier to them they had overthrown the teutonic goths of spain as easily as persians and syrians they were unchecked for a hundred years from 632 to 732 from the death of mohammed till the victory of the franks and charles martel at poitiers their power was acknowledged from the oxus and the indus to the atlantic but they twice recoiled from the walls of constantinople after the rapid changes of emperors which took place on the extinction of the family of heraclius another of those foreign soldiers who while the constitution of the empire went on unaltered made the most vigorous chiefs of the executive power was proclaimed emperor by the troops of asia and he founded an imperial line which lasted till the days of charles the great this was the isaurian leo the third known as the iconoclast the image-breaker he like heraclius received the empire in an hour of great peril the saracens with the fame of their astonishing conquests were now a second time before constantinople but leo deserves with charles martel the glory of daring to believe that they were not irresistible he forced them to retire from before constantinople seven sixteen to eighteen and thus checked them definitively in eastern europe under leo's vigorous government the empire rose from the decline into which it had fallen under the degenerate family of heraclius few imperial lines had more repulsive features than the isaurian but it was a line of able and resolute men the empire under them assumed a narrower compass and having lost africa egypt and syria passed into its more distinctive byzantine phase but if its pretensions were lowered its power was more concentrated greater vigour was thrown into the administration population increased and with it commerce and wealth the slav agricultural settlements throve only too well for the older inhabitants and the cities were thickly peopled the army was well organized and trained the administration of the provinces was systematically carried out and in spite of frequent arbitrary and cruel acts of power the ordinary rule of the law was maintained notwithstanding the incorrigible vices and inconsistencies of the court an improved moral tone became discernible both in lay and ecclesiastical society and to quote the latest and most careful historian of the eastern empire mr finley in the times of the isorian emperors and their successors of the macedonian line a period which corresponded to the renewed frank kingdom under pippin and charles and the first carolingians a declining empire was saved by moral vigour in society and the strong efforts of the central power but every expression of praise in these ages of the world must be comparative when the administration was wisest the law most just the army most in order commerce most thriving when the condition of the people was most prosperous and the public enemy on the north or east most successfully repelled yet with scarcely a variation the court was corrupt and vicious and frequently infested with fashions of hypocritical or grossly inconsistent devotion and the ancient and widely spread vice of cruelty not yet and not for many ages subdued by its natural enemy christianity was still in forms of the most atrocious barbarity the regular resource not merely of those who feared and hated and of those who punished but of those who had to compel obedience or to anticipate and guard against danger whether as soldiers or as civil rulers. Some of the most dreadful incidents of horrible ferocity ever recorded mark the history of the Eastern Empire under the conduct of its ablest and most successful rulers. The political and military events of the East did not much affect things in the West. Embassies passed to and fro, once in these times an emperor, the II, 641-668, to 668, appeared at rome and even exiled a roman bishop pope martin i 649 to 655. and there were a few royal marriages especially when there came to be emperors in the west but the eastern empire was of much importance in its influence on the ideas of kingly power as they developed themselves in the contemporaneous society of western europe the great emperor augustus basilius at constantinople was the type and standard looked up to with admiration and envy by the kings of the Franks and even of the English. His dignity was an example and precedent of boundless power and of extravagant homage to the person of the prince. In civil matters there was much in the rooted national ideas and habits of the West to tone down these exaggerations, but his prerogatives suggested great pretensions in regard to religion. At Constantinople, The theory of a divine and sacred supremacy in the sphere of religion was carried out to mischievous lengths. Constantine's policy, 311 to 337, high-handed as it was, had been really to leave the Church to settle questions itself, to speak its own mind, and to define its own belief by its legitimate organs. His successor, Constantius, 337 to 361, reversed this he claimed to be the arbiter and judge of religious controversies he claimed for the emperor the right of prescribing creeds and he imposed arianism on the empire a belief which was not the real belief of the church in due time was shaken off but the bad and tempting precedent had been set of bringing the secular power though in conjunction with the recognized organs of the church to interfere in questions of pure theology These questions at the beginning of church history excited the profoundest interest, for they related to the object of Christian worship and to the central truths and real meaning of the facts of the Christian redemption. Instead of leaving them fairly to the only possible authority, the great councils of the church and its natural representatives, for if they were not of authority there was no other, The emperors took on themselves more and more to make their own judgment the law of public belief, to direct the issues of the conflicts of religious opinion, to dictate the terms of comprehension, to enforce unity of conviction and language by stringent and penal laws. And the usurpation became constitutional by the readiness of the bishops of the church to accept and authorize the interference of the emperor when it was on their side and directed against opponents and by giving a sanction tacit or express, to the detestable and fatal violence which too often accompanied controversy so momentous with the later emperors such as justinian and heraclius it was less a strength of personal belief than an impatience of disputes and contradictions and a fear sometimes not an unreasonable fear of political troubles that directed their policy constantius attempted to impose a dogma his successors to express and enforce a compromise in which great controversies were to end the rude barbarian soldier zeno by a formulary of his own attempted vainly to put an end to the divisions of the church arising out of the rival heresies of nestorius and eutyches as to the consequences which flow from the idea of the incarnation. Justinian exercised his imperial supremacy in religion in the most extravagant and the most fruitless manner, 519-565, and in the subtle but dangerous controversy which followed, on the reality of the moral constitution of our lord's human nature, the monothelite controversy, Heraclius tried, like Zeno, and like Zeno, in vain, to impose terms of his own by the imperial authority on the consciences and convictions of those who felt the interest of the question. Under Leo the Isaurian and his line, the imperial claim was extended from doctrines to the usages of the church, 717 to 792. Superstition had without doubt gathered round the customary use and worship of devotional pictures and images, and it is possible. That the taunts of the victorious Mahometans may have made them more odious to the rude and impatient soldier. But on the strength of his claims as supreme ruler of religion, he attacked the abuses with an unintelligent and intemperate violence, which was mischievous in itself and gave the utmost advantage to the defenders of what was indefensible. He, and still more his son Constantine V, 741 to 785 arrayed against themselves the self-respect the good sense the conscience the piety of the time as well as its prejudiced bigotry and superstition after the most abominable cruelties and persecution they utterly failed in checking the abuses they aimed at and they brought about a reaction which hindered any reasonable settlement of a matter which reason was eminently competent to settle and which the soberer temper of charles the great showed the way to settle with moderation and wisdom at the council of frankfort in seventeen ninety four the tyranny with which the emperors enforced their authority and their own personal opinions aggravated the violence and mischief of the disputes it led in more than one case to great and lasting schisms it was copied by those who suffered from it worse still it became accepted as part of the royal prerogative when charles the great came though with greater moderation than the eastern emperors to carry out his office as guardian reformer and overlooker of the religious interests of his kingdom and it led to confusion between the domain of conscience and the powers of the state which have caused infinite harm and misery in civilized society and which have not yet been got rid of not the least of the irreparable mischiefs which it occasioned under the successors of leo the iconoclast was the impulse which it gave to the rising ambition of the popes to claim a rival and universal supremacy and to the quarrels accidental and comparatively insignificant in themselves which ultimately determined the permanent separation of the eastern and western churches under the tyranny of the emperor patriarchs and bishops were deposed and replaced at his will in one of these many transactions a deposed and ill-used patriarch ignatius hopeless at constantinople appealed in eight fifty seven against his rival focius to the pope it was an appeal for justice against wrong for protection and countenance abroad where none could be had at home such appeals had been often made it was a time when men appealed to whatever power within reach seemed likely to help them but the judge who is now appealed to as arbiter in this personal quarrel was the first pope of the type afterwards to be so frequent, the daring and imperious Nicholas i eight fifty eight to eight sixty seven supporting a just cause against intrigue and despotism, he put his own claims to redress it and to punish the wrongdoers on assumptions of authority as extravagant as those of the Emperor. The dispute gradually became complicated with doctrinal questions and got into a shape in which it became irreconcilable the Pope excommunicated Phocis in 863, and Phocis excommunicated Nicholas in 867. It might have seemed but a conflict which would pass away, as more than one such conflict had passed with those who were party to it. Nicholas died soon after in 867, and Phocis, after many falls and restorations, lived to be at last acknowledged by a Pope, John Eighth in 879. But the wound, in fact, proved to have been a fatal one and could not be healed, and the great schism of East and West dates from the high handed assertion of Roman spiritual superiority provoked by the wanton insolence of imperial despotism End of Section thirteen